when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan has reached a fever pitch as 2016 candidates weigh in and various emergency declarations get made. But we're going to step away from the sideshow this week and attempt to figure out how all of this actually came to pass. And joining us to discuss this is a man who was there when the fateful decisions got made, former Flint City Councilman Josh Freeman. Meanwhile, we are mere days away from the Iowa caucus, and across this land, the geek show is in full effect. The GOP is slowly starting to cotton to the notion that they may have to accept Donald Trump, even as he uses Sarah Palin to rub their faces in their failings. And the Democratic side of the ledger has taken a veer into edgy chaos as well. We go searching for constants in a race where the norms have slipped and the scripts have flipped. Finally, Washington, D.C. played host to the U.S. Conference of Mayors this week, and the scene was more electric than usual. Flint's lead pipes, Baltimore's inequality, and Chicago's policing troubles brought attention and protest. The Huffington Post was there, so we will tell you about it. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Ashley Allman, Zach Carter, Julia Craven, and Arthur Delaney. If this is our last report before the blizzard kills us all, we want you to know that we've loved having you as listeners. But here's what happened first. Hello, America. Welcome once again to another edition of So That Happened, a podcast about stuff. I'm Jason Lincolns, editor of Eat the Press, uh, committed member of the What's Not Working crew. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm joined uh, by Zachary Carter. Hi, everybody. I used your full name. Yeah. We're, form, very, we're formal now. For very something. unusual, actually. It's, yeah. it's been Zach since I was in, I think, kindergarten. Right. So Zach Carter, he is here. And also joining us, Ashley Allman. Hi there. Bass player for the Allman Brothers Band. Yes, definitely. Uh, we're we're really glad to have you both here. We're uh, just just set the scene for everybody. Uh, Washington is about to get destroyed by snow, uh, and so it was nice knowing all of you. <laughs> we 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 really regret the fact that we're completely incompetent at dealing with snow. We got a, light... a lot of snow. Let's be fair. We're yes. just sliding around. It's treacherous out there already. But, but earlier this week, we had a light dusting, and the whole town collapsed in a heap, and it was kind of embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Mostly for me, because I was in my car commuting home. My four-hour, my four-mile commute usually takes about ten minutes. It took me two and a half hours. Oh, ouch! Yep, not fun, not fun. But you know, I have it pretty easy because in the 2016 world, you're not running for president. I'm not running for president. Thank God. Thank God for everybody. <laughs> um, but uh, the blood dim tide is loosed, man. Ceremony of innocence is drowned. We're talking about the uh, recent reunion of sorts between Donald Trump and Sarah Palin, which has driven the discussion into the ditch that <laughs> we always knew it was going to get driven We're into. We're finally there. The woman who's the woman who found governing to be too difficult, and the man who thinks governing is super easy. This is a match made in. I find I find the whole Sarah Palin thing um, really illustrative of of actually Trump's candidacy more broadly, because we like to pretend in the media that he is some unique phenomenon, that there's something uniquely terrible about Donald Trump. And I'm not going to say that he's not terrible. I I think it's okay for me to say that. Um, But Sarah Palin was the nominee for vice president for the Republican Party in 2008. She was an establishment politician. She was the vice presidential nominee for the Republican Party. Now, we, of course, consider her a total clown, but she was the same person in 2008. And the fact that this is a big deal, that she's getting this, that, that she's endorsing Donald Trump, I think shows that there's always been this, this kind of weird, nasty strain within the GOP, uh, and that it's always been courting these types of voters. So the, the Trump candidacy, in a lot, of, a lot of ways, is just sort of the apotheosis of something that's been embedded in the Republican Party's basic political strategy for a long time. 
And the question is also, how do you define big deal here? Because support from Sarah Palin in 2008 was a different kind of big deal, I feel like, than it is now. Then it was, yes, the polished establishment candidate. Now it is the, you know entertainer and clown, as you said, in the same way that Donald Trump is. The way our readers read about Sarah Palin in 2008 was a lot different from the way that they read about her now. It's like, here we go again, rather than uh, here here we go again of a different variety. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, here we go again, pinned to a John McCain. We'll the, say. The here we go again that you get from Sarah Palin is not the same. Here we go again that Democrats say about say Hillary Clinton. Exactly. Exactly. Again. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree that this is kind of the apotheosis of the way the GOP has been trending for such a long time. You're right. In 2008, uh, John McCain selected Sarah Palin in what was at the time really a desperation move. Uh, and they dressed her up and gave her a warmed over Pat Buchanan speech and loosed her upon the world. And, and it catalyzed in the electorate, something deeply destructive. But I want to say that it, it's also, I think the apotheosis of the way the media has treated politics for as long as I've been in the media, trying to treat politics in the other direction, which is that the geek show is now fully upon us. There was always a choice, even way back when Donald Trump began his candidacy, to not point so many cameras at him. There was always that choice. There are umpteen candidates running in this election. Jeb Bush can't get a camera at his rally. John Kasich can't get MSNBC to break in at his rally. Marco Rubio, despite having all of the... He's the wet dream of the GOP establishment, can't get Fox News to cut in on his his rallies. They're all doing rallies. You have to understand, they're all out there on the stump. They're all doing these things. Donald Trump is the one that summons the cameras to him. And I think it's because uh, of this, this gross tendency in the media to highlight the grossness above anything out there that might be called sensible, material, uh, substantive, uh, it's 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 toxic. It draws us into it as well. I got to say, when I was watching the last Republican debate, I found myself, you know, not really liking myself because as as they would when when Ted Cruz and Donald Trump would sort of fight each other and get into some sort of rhetorical test of wills, I would get like my heart rate would increase. I'd yeah. get excited. I would I would laugh. And then then when other people on stage would say something about policy, I'd be like, OK, I'm kind of bored. Can we get back to the stupid fight again? The, the reason that cable news covers this stuff so much is, is because there is that part of, of people, even people who are not Donald Trump or Ted Cruz supporters, uh, that, that enjoy the entertainment value of this, even when it's, uh, you know, kind of cheapening our, our national dialogue. You know, years from now, we're going to read about this election, whether it's because Donald Trump becomes our president or uh. if it's because this bursts into flames, like we're all kind of anticipating it eventually will. But we can still talk about the fact that this was really one for the books. It's kind of crazy what's going on right now. Yeah, we're all sort of like going down uh, on a serotonin high from this from the spectacle. But there was always a choice, man. There was always a choice. It's true. There were uh, I here's here's how it manifests itself. Donald Trump says something ridiculous. We should ban Muslims entering the country. Normally, like there are crackpot politicians out there in the states who say crackpot things all the time. And uh, sometimes when you go after and you emphasize that, people are just like, why are you picking up? This is just dumb. This guy's dumb. This is a dumb idea. Just don't cover it. You've got to cover Donald Trump. But what, how it manifested itself is he says something crackpot about banning Muslims in the country. And then the media gets into it and we start talking about, well, it would be impractical. We start talking about how it could be practical, how it could happen. We start dreaming of what a Trump presidency might be. And before we know it, we've done the work for him. Mm -hmm. The media does the work of rationalizing his crazy policies as things that actually could be possible in America. That's that's all true. But I think you're being a little hard on the media here. Remember, there it's are, my there, job. There, remember, there, there are Republicans who are also trying to win the presidency, who are also trying to figure out what their president presidential candidate is going to look like, what they want their party to stand for. And when they get asked about Donald Trump's Muslim ban, they say, well, you know, maybe I wouldn't do it that way. I, I don't know if that's a great policy, but is this a sort of thing that should be disqualifying? Well, no, I'm going to support whoever the, the, the nominee is. And so Trump running not as a, as a sort of conventional supply side tax cuts for the wealthy Republican, but as a conventional European fascist candidate who you know is opposed to whole groups of people uh, who who runs on anger and hatred. I mean, he looks like a conventional European fascist candidate. I don't think that's an extreme statement at all. Um, 
the, the Republican establishment is kind of like, well, you know, we're not really excited about that, but we're not so upset about it that we're going to that we're going to we're going to do anything to drive this guy out of the race. And you can see in Iowa right now, it seemed like Ted Cruz was catching up to him. Maybe he was ahead for a little while. It does seem like in the last week or so, uh, Trump has, has has regained the lead, even if it's a narrow one at this point in the polling race. And I think that's that's going to be a big moment uh, in 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 this cycle if, if Donald Trump actually starts winning primaries. I'm, I'm amazed that the antipathy that Ted Cruz has engendered among his colleagues in Washington and the people who run the Republican Party as an elite institution, the contempt he's engendered is so severe that they might cotton to Trump in the end. And indeed, I mean, Ryan, Ryan Grimm and Sam Stein are fearless leader bosses of great merit. Uh, wrote a piece this week where they, they basically showed that a lot of Republican establishment is gravitating to Trump because they think maybe it's all an act. They know that Ted Cruz is Ted Cruz, and they, they, they would rather gamble on Trump than, uh, than deal with the devil they know, which strikes me as rather remarkable. I mean, actually, don't you think it's crazy? Like, if, if I had told you nine months ago that we were heading into, you know, we were a week out from the Iowa caucuses, and the two front runners were Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. No, it's totally baffling. I never, I never would have believed you. Never in a million years. I have to say, this is going to be an election cycle where I'm left, I'm the guy left grasping, where I'm the guy left uh, looking over a, a, a panoply of mistakes, uh, because everything I once considered to be a norm has been thrown in the river. I think the right, the right parallel is not American politics of the last 30 years. I think it's actually post-World War I politics, and mostly in Europe. Well, we are going to have a brief discussion about the Democrat side of these things just after these messages. We'll be right back. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
We're back. We're back with Zach and Ashley. Woo-hoo. We're going to switch sides to the other side of the ledger, 2016, the Democratic side. And uh, I have to say that there's a little bit of the old snotty chaos happening on the Democratic side now, too. It's getting ugly out there, man. It's getting ugly. We used to have, we, we started off with a pretty elevated debate. Now it's kind of descended into some nast. Yeah, it's getting a little nasty. It's definitely getting a little nasty. It's almost like it's politics. <laughs> <laughs> Here's something that's kind of remarkable. I think I think uh, I can't remember where I read this, but someone made uh, an astute observation that we're now into a second presidential campaign from Hillary Clinton. She was the part of two other presidential campaigns in the '90s, and she seems to be stuck once again with people running a campaign who are just completely knocked out and out of sorts that they actually have to do any campaigning. Mm-hmm. Am I crazy? No, I mean, that's totally what we're seeing. And, and it's definitely been a scramble in Iowa now for them. The caucus is on February 1st. It's coming up. And I read in the Times, the campaign denied this, but the Times is saying that 90% of Clinton's campaign resources are split between her Brooklyn headquarters and Iowa right now, which is just insane. You know, I think I think if you're a Clinton strategist, and I think they've, mishandled this in a lot of ways, but I actually don't think the the devotion of resources in Iowa is is a crazy thing. Because if she wins Iowa, that is, I think, almost a knockout blow to the Sanders campaign. You know, maybe he comes back in, in New Hampshire and can make a case to, to win in, in Nevada or something. But but if she wins Iowa, the inevitability argument, the coronation, I think will will start to begin. People will be like, all right, she's the only one who can win. Let's start getting excited about Hillary Clinton. If, if you know, for Democrats, she's the person who's going to be taking on the Republicans. If she loses Iowa, however, and it, and to, earlier this last week, I thought it looked it looked things looked better for Sanders. There's a couple of polls that came out this week which show Clinton with larger leads in Iowa than than the polls last week did. So it does. The, the trend had been that Sanders was was about to overtake her. It's not obvious to me that that's where things are going. Although I do think it's going to be close. But I think if I still think if she wins Iowa, that that you know. The Sanders campaign can keep campaigning through maybe Nevada. Um, they'll have the resources for it, but it, it'll just be it'll just be a campaign about about message. It won't really be a, uh, uh, he, he will no longer be considered someone who is seriously in the running for the presidency. Uh, we've had sort of an internal debate here about uh, the Flint water crisis. Um, I sort of view what happened with Hillary Clinton in the Flint water crisis as a test of her whole overarching concept as governing. She's going to become president at a time where she's going to be facing at least one, if not two, legislative houses that are against her. Uh, it's going to it's going to take a tremendous amount of political skill and what we call savvy to for her to enact any kind of change or influence world events. So this week, when Flint blew up, actually it was more like last week when Flint blew up, she got involved in it. She dispatched campaign aides to Flint, Michigan. She uh, had discussions with the mayor. She obtained the facts. And then she went on uh, the Rachel Maddow show to talk about this and urge action. And what she will say is two hours after she was on the Rachel Maddow show, it awoke the sleeping people in uh, Grick Snyder to start asking around instead of fumbling around, but start coming out and asking for help with this crisis. Doesn't this kind of speak to how uh, her argument that Bernie Sanders politics all lives in like an abstract land and she's the practical operator? Doesn't this help her? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had Bernie Sanders calling for Snyder to resign, but that which was, sounds great. It's a great sounds great. Yeah. And it was a passionate call for a resignation. And it's something that everyone would read and say, yeah, I totally agree with that. Or you know, at least Bernie's saying something. But what does he have to show for it beyond that? You know, when you have the residents of Flint, of Michigan generally saying, you know, we see Clinton's people here, but we don't see Sanders' people here. He's all talk and no walk. That doesn't really reflect Presidents well. don't usually get to just make the call that you should resign. I mean, John McCain got pilloried during his 2008 campaign when uh, when when he asked uh, for, for the guy who was running the SEC, I'll fire him. Something strange is happening, though, with, with Hillary Clinton nationally, because because you see the polls tightening, tightening in Iowa. Maybe, maybe she's getting a little more separation th- this week. We'll see. I mean, I think it's going to be very, very close in Iowa. But if you look nationally, the numbers have tightened a lot for Clinton. She was up two weeks ago. She was up 15 points nationally, according to HuffPost, you know, average. average. Yeah. Now that's eight. 
that's a really, really big I mean, her lead's been cut in half over a couple of weeks. And what happened? A debate that nobody watched on a Sunday night. So uh, before a holiday. So something is going on. I th- I, and and I, th- I think it speaks more broadly to I don't know if it's if, if it's the way she campaigns in a primary. I mean, she's gone after uh, a couple of Sanders positions that are very popular within the Democratic Party. She's gone after him on single payer health care. She's gone after him for breaking up the banks. I don't really understand why you would do that in a Democratic Party primary. And she's been really nasty about it and pretty dishonest, which I think sort of helps helps the polarization of these two, you know, the, the my team versus your team kind of phenomenon that you're seeing in the Democratic Party, which wasn't, I think, as prominent in, say, November or October. When don't we ever play that, though? Don't we? Isn't it fair to say that most dyed-in-the-wool Democrats are looking at the race and saying, oh, cool, I like both these candidates. I'd be happy to vote for either one. I think so. I mean, I mean we kind of get, get subsumed into the Twitter fights, with... particularly with Donald Trump and Ted Cruz on the other side. Right. <laughs> but, but I mean, but I, I can't help thinking about about the 2008 campaign. I, I feel like, I mean, you, you brought this up earlier, Jason. That like, the, seem, you seem to get this air of like contempt from the Clinton campaign. That like, oh my God, how do we, why do we have to compete against this guy? We really, you seriously, we're we're at, we have to campaign against this guy, and then the fact is. You know, what, whatever you think about Bernie Sanders' record or his, uh, you know, his, his list of accomplishments in Washington, he supports policies that Democrats like. And he talks to people in the Democratic Party in ways that, that they are particularly sensitive to right now. Per, that people are very attuned to economic issues. It's, it's not, and that's not just like a white class thing. If you, if you look at the polling data going back to August on this, the top issue for, across every demographic for a Democrat is economic, some, some form of economic issue, some form of economic insecurity. And she doesn't, she doesn't communicate well on those issues, but she's got a lot of stuff that's pretty good. It's not as strong, say, as Sanders' platform, but realistically, nothing's going to happen for anybody. When the, if, if a Democrat's elected, there's going to be no forward movement on progressive issues because, as you said earlier, Jason, there are going to be Republicans in, in, in Congress who are going to block that agenda. So it's going to be a defensive presidency, and yet you're still seeing throughout this process people evaluating the candidates in the Democratic Party as if these platforms matter, wanting to hear the candidates speak to things that, that, that they have cared about. It does kind of beg the question, why aren't we evaluating, you know, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders' abilities as a defensive candidate more, uh, or a defensive president, I should say. And I, I do think that if you really pushed people to think about that, that they would think that Hillary Clinton could be a better defensive president than Bernie Sanders could be. But I just think it would take outrageous effort to get people to look at this election through that lens. Yeah. Interesting. So what do you guys think? Who's who's going to win Iowa? We got we got a week, week to Are go. Are you really going to do this to us? Yeah, come on. Let's let's make some predictions. Uh, I think Trump wins Iowa and I think I think Clinton wins Iowa. Yeah, I'm Trump and Clinton. I'm pretty confident about that too. I'm going to say Trump and Sanders just to be contrarian even though earlier I was saying she looks better. <laughs> uh, I just can't I don't think we can have have totally unanimity on this podcast. I think the the case for I agree with you guys on Trump and Iowa. Uh, but I think the case for Sanders winning Iowa here, just to backtrack on what I was saying earlier, where it seemed like Clinton was was pulling away, um, you know, all all Sanders got to do is go around telling a bunch of socialists in Iowa and I, people who you know vote the Democratic prime Caucus in Iowa. There's a bunch of socialists in there. Yeah. <laughs> just, just go around saying I'm a socialist. I'm going to fight for you. Um, I think I think he he's got he's got an emotionally compelling pitch. For, and for these people. He is doing that now. He got a bus. He's very excited about his new fancy bus paid for by Bernie Sanders, not the billionaires, it says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, uh, you know what? Like like the Pixies say, everybody's going to get a, everybody's going to burn and I'll get my turn. All right. We will be right back.
And we're back. And I'm joined by my colleague, Arthur Delaney. Hi. Here in the studio. And joining us by phone, we have a special guest. Josh Freeman served on the Flint City Council from 2004 to December 2015. Uh, he uh, has some very particular insights into uh, what's going on in Flint, what happened, how it happened. And uh, Josh, we're really glad that, you, that, you, that you jo- you're joining us today to talk about this. Happy to be with you. So, Mr. Freeman, there was this fateful decision in April of 2014 for Flint to switch its water source from the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department to the Flint River. And there's a, there's a, there's a big debate over whether this is all on Rick Snyder because Flint was under the control of an emergency manager he appointed Whereas Rick Snyder himself says, wait, wait a minute, you know, the, in 2013, the Flint City Council voted to change its water supply. So you were there. Please tell us what happened. Yeah, yeah. So the, the governor has been, you know, trying to use that line or that action that was taken by the city council and what we um, to kind of, you know, remove himself from this problem. Um, essentially, what happened um, when we voted to leave the Detroit water system, we voted to leave Detroit and join the Gandhi Water Authority that we knew at the time was not going to be online until 2016. At no time has the uh, Flint City Council, uh, the mayor at that time, at no time had we decided to use the Flint River, voted on, um, talked about um, using the Flint River as our primary water source. Um, there's you know, multiple discussions at that time about, you know, should we go to Detroit, should we stay um, um, or should we stay with Detroit, or should we go to KWA, or even, you know, the possibility of using that uh, river? But it was determined that number one, the river wasn't viable as a long-term solution for us. There was going to be too much cost there. Um, Detroit was not going to be viable um, financially for the city of Flint because well, we were receiving double-digit increases. Well, yeah, tell us about that. Tell tell us why uh, Flint wanted to get away from Detroit, uh, where the city had been getting its water for for almost fifty years. Yeah, it was the double-digit increases that we were getting from Detroit um, on a yearly basis. We were the furthest out on that system, so our um, uh, rate structure was um, was very crappy for the city of Flint. It's too costly, is what you're saying. Too costly, yeah. And what KWA offered for us was stability over 25 years. We knew in year one we were going to pay $6 million for raw water, and it was going to be the same amount in year 25. There wouldn't be these um, dramatic price increases that we were seeing every year from Detroit. So, Flint, this, there was this vote, the 7-1 to vote to join the KWA, not to take water from the river, but to join this new water authority. And then what happened right after that? Uh, immediately after we took that vote, we got a letter from Sue McCormick, who was the director of the DWFB, Detroit Water and Sewer Department, uh, terminating the contract with the city of Flint. We had been on a um, contract extension. Our, our 30-year contract had expired. We were on a kind of a year-to-year contract extension, and they basically said um, uh, in one year from this date, which that contract allowed for, uh, the city of Flint would be cut off from the Detroit system. And that's not something you guys thought going in was going to happen. No, we had never taken uh, or never contemplated that because, frankly, you know, the city of Flint had an emergency manager controlled by the state. The city of Detroit had an emergency manager controlled by the state. It kind of didn't make sense in my mind. Number one, Detroit was um, struggling significantly financially to the point where they, you know, went bankrupt. Why would they want to remove the largest customer um, on their system with Flint and Genesee County um, just kind of out of a spite move, knowing that, it was going to be, you know, they could continue to receive revenue from the city of Flint for a couple of years until KWA uh, got online. Now, they, they were willing to keep Flint, but didn't wasn't it that they wanted more money in exchange for providing water? Right, yeah. Again, uh, they would, uh, well, a couple of things. They said, well, we'll do a month-to-month with you, and um, we're going to jack up the rates even more than our normal, you know, standard double-digit increase. Um, or if you want to negotiate a contract, you know, we're not interested in doing it for two years. We're only going to consider a 30-year contract with you. So es- Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to pay these exorbitant rates on a month-to-month basis. So essentially, you guys voted to make a f- change in the future to a different water authority. And the water authority you were on 
took that opportunity to recognize the fact that they weren't going to be the, the new water authority wasn't going to be coming on line until 2016 and they basically had your back over a barrel and they essentially extorted you that that's yeah that absolutely sums it up detroit thought that they were going to be able to um, put ourselves you know in a bad position to where they could get whatever they wanted from well that's good and humane local governance right there so the, um, the flint river was available though and, and had been used as a backup before yeah so. I, I yeah the, the city of flint had used the flint river and and for genesee county as well um, that we, the Flint River was the backup for the entire length of term that we were with the city of Detroit. And in fact, we had used it, I want to say it was in 2004 when we had that blackout here on the um, East Coast. We were on the Flint River for, I don't know, three or four days until um, DWSD was able to get power back up and start pumping water again. So the uh, Rick Snyder, the governor, released emails uh, relating to Flint this week, and you can see conversations between the treasurer and the and the uh, emergency manager saying, look, the, sticking with Detroit is going to be way more expensive. And if we go with the Flint River, we'll save a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. The city of Flint had done these studies prior to going into emergency management. Um, and, you know, we had determined that that was in the long-term best interest was going with KWA. And then when the state came in and took over, you know, obviously Detroit has got quite a bit of clout in Lansing. And, you know, they were pushing for us to remain on their system, telling us that, you know, the cost estimates that we were getting to join KWA were, you know, it was going to cost double what, you know, the, our engineering firms were telling us were actually we've come in under budget significantly on the KWA project. Um, so there, there was a lot of pressure there. And um, Treasury took almost a year, um, maybe, maybe a little bit longer than a year before they even finally signed off and said, look, this is the best, this is the best deal for the city of Flint um, long-term. Did did the Flint City Council think using the Flint River in the interim was a crazy bad idea? No, you know, we had actually had some people when um, we were debating going towards um, KWA, we'd actually had council members advocating that we use the Flint River. Um, some of the vocal opponents that are out there protesting um, today were standing before us saying that we were crazy for joining KWA, that the county was just trying to take over the city of Flint, and that we had this river running through us, you know, through the heart of the city, and that we should be using that as our primary drinking source. And, um, you know, looking at the cost of doing that didn't make sense at nope. the time, and that's why we decided to join KWA. Um, all of the information that we had, that everybody had at the time, said that the Flint River would be a safe and reliable source. And frankly, had the MDEQ, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, um, applied the right standard to the city of Flint, we probably wouldn't be having the issues. Uh, I know we wouldn't be having the issues we have now because we would have used corrosion control. The, what uh, My understanding of, of what actually happened in the water here was that there were corrosive elements in the actual water of the Flint River that uh, chemically reacted with the lead pipes, extracting lead and putting it into the water. That's like my not-a-scientist explanation. What, what, what did you anticipate was going to happen to prevent this? Well, you know, I'd, I've never run a water plant before. We hire a staff to do that, and we have oversight from the state that is supposed to protect the people from um, those types of things. You know, obviously the river is groundwater. It is significantly harder to treat than lake water, um, you know, out of the Great Lakes. And because it is the groundwater, it has a higher organic material in it, or not groundwater, but surface water with a higher organic material in it. They've got to put basically more chlorine in it to disinfect it. And it's that high chlorine content that when it got into the cast iron um, um, mains and then into the lead service lines that are going into the houses because we're, you know, we're a very old um, community. We have housing that was built at the turn of the century where they use lead to, you know, service lines from the water main into the house. And as that water would sit in there, um, it took the protective coating on the inside of the pipes off, and then it allowed that those lead pipes, the lead, to leach into the water and then um, come into the house. From talking to you, you get the impression that the debate over whether the local government endorsed the decision or it was all the emergency manager is beside the point. The problem was that the water didn't get treated. The problem was is that the state applied the wrong standard to the city of Flint in terms of um, how and when to add corrosion control. Do you think that the fact that Flint is a, 
working class city uh, played a role in this at all? In terms of what? Well, in terms of a lack of attention. Not sure. It's not. I'm just speculating. Because you, you know, the the complaints started immediately and were very intense from the get go in 2014. We absolutely did. We did have complaints, and the city reacted um, at every complaint. We had. Um, some discoloration problems, and we started a very aggressive um, maintenance program on the on the um, system, which hadn't been done, frankly, in 30 years. Um, you know, we had broken valves all over the place. The water wasn't flowing in the right direction within the system. And then when you fix those and change directions, it would stir up that sediment and cause discoloration. Um, we had a TTHM problem, total trihalomethane. I'm, I'm not even sure the right... Um, word on it, but I just call um, it a uh, a uh, treatment byproduct. There, there you go, a treatment byproduct problem. And once once that was discovered, the city went out and spent two million dollars on a filtration system and took care of that. But you know, and and frankly, once once this lead um, problem was found to be um, more widespread throughout the city, the city went and was able to negotiate a pretty sweetheart deal with Detroit. I mean, we're paying less now than we did when we were on the Detroit system with the contract and we're the lowest lowest rates on the entire system to get off of that um, river water that was causing problems and um, back onto the Detroit system. Um, you retired from the city council uh, just this past December. Uh, and, uh, retired, that's a good way of putting it. Or resigned. I, I, yeah, there you go. So, so, so you're not at the you're not at the levers of power in Flint anymore. But uh, if you were, what what kind of solution would we be advocating for? What's the step forward right now? I, look, the step forward. If we're going to fix this problem, this lead problem that we had, you know, that nobody wants to talk about, we had a lead issue in the city of Flint um, prior to the switch to the Flint River. I mean, the ultimate fix is going to be going in and changing those fifteen thousand homes the service lines that go into these homes. Um, but if we're going to fix this problem um, long-term, because it doesn't matter what source of water we have, um, you know, prior to the switch over to the Flint River, you know, we had children testing with elevated lead levels in the city. Um, after the switch, you know, it did spike a little bit. But going back to Detroit or going ultimately with KWA, we've got this lead problem that needs to be addressed. So that's something that I would like to, um, to see um, some help from um, the state or the federal government to address those issues. Because, you know, th- it, that's not a problem that's unique to Flint. Um, no, both no older industrial cities, not in just Michigan, but across the across the country, have these types of issues. And really, if, if we could get Congress down there talking about fixing some um, infrastructure um, problems like that, you know, I think that would go a long way. We're very glad to have had you on to talk about this on our show. We hope others follow suit. Uh, in the meantime, uh, best of luck to you. Uh, we look for, uh, I hope, I hope things improve. And, uh, if, if they don't, we look forward to talking to you again. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. Thanks. We could also talk to you about a happy thing that happened. Let it, let us know if anything great happens. We'll have you back on to talk about <laughs> things that are great too. Former Flint city councilman, Josh Freeman. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And we will be right back. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. Joining us now, Arthur Delaney, still here. Hi. And with us is our good friend, reporter, Julia Craven. Hi. How you doing, Julia? I'm cold. Yeah, it's um <laughs> it's been a couple couple cold days for us. Storms are coming. Storms are coming. Blizzard. But uh I guess we're gonna talk about a different storm. Uh 
normally when Washington DC plays host to the U S conference of mayors, it's a sort of placid affair. Mayors come, uh, they like to show off their policy innovations. Uh, there's not a whole lot of attention given to it, but this time around, a lot of focus on city governance. You have the Flint water crisis, you have, uh, ongoing, uh, Baltimore's inequality and the Freddie Gray case. Mm-hmm. And you have everything that's going on in Chicago. And at this particular uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, confident man coming out of a safe space to come to D.C. We were, uh, Julia, you were there. Was this a, was this a little bit surreal? Yeah, um, I got an email the day before the conference and it said that Rom Emanuel was going to be there. And I looked at it and I was just like, what the fuck? Like, are they kidding? <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> it was, it was crazy to me that he was going to show up. Um, just considering everything that him and his administration are dealing with right now. So I felt like he would have been one tied down and two, not necessarily wanting to be in a room full of reporters when the Laquan McDonald video came out last year and more recently, um, Cedric Chapman, another 17-year-old who was shot and killed by um, Chicago PD a couple years ago. Give us a brief background on this just for people who may have not been following these stories. Basically, there was a citizen journalist who got the Laquan McDonald video released. His shooting happened about two or three years ago, and the administration was just kind of like, not going to release it. I don't think we need to. We shouldn't do it. And then the prosecutor's office was just like, yeah, no, you kind of need to release that video. And once it went public, there were a lot of protests, a lot of backlash, and a lot of calls for Rom to resign. Yeah. And one of the implications in the Laquan McDonald video is that is that authorities had actually stonewalled the release of this video <laughs> and, and perhaps actively engaged in it cover-up of what happened. There was evidence that police actually tampered with evidence. Right. Uh, and this has all put Rom in the crosshairs. Well, real quick. Yeah. They also paid the family, the McDonald family. Oh, that's right. With Unprompted by a lawsuit, even. Right. They were just right. going to take some money. As if to postpone this until Rom yeah. got safely And I re-elected. actually, I don't think it's been reported. I don't think anyone knows, but I wonder if that um, settlement included a non-disparagement clause. Like, can they even talk about this publicly now that they've accepted the money? It's a good point. So, so there's uh, leaving all this aside. I was I'm curious as to what it is that Rahm Emanuel would even hang his hat on as mayor of Chicago because, to me, his record of accomplishments fairly skint. That's a good question. So, what went down? We can start with the opening press conference. A couple minutes into the speech, um, which was being delivered by Baltimore's mayor, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, she um, she said, excuse me. <laughs> she scooted past everyone. She unfolded her sign, and she stood up in front of the podium. And her sign said, 16 shots in a cover-up, hashtag Laquan McDonald, hashtag resign Rom. <laughs> and then after that, I was just kind of like oh, shit, we have a protest on our hands. That's right. It's lit. Yeah. <laughs> it's very lit. And then three other people from the audience, three other black people, started yelling Black Lives Matter. Um, they were yelling at Rawlings Blake. They were saying resign Rom. They were saying, like, you know, you're talking about investment um, in your cities, but no one is investing in our communities. Um, which I thought was very interesting. One of the protesters, his name was Shy Crawley, 20-year-old Baltimore resident. And he said, let this be a reminder. We will not be silenced. We will not bow down. We will not go away until our voices as people, as citizens, as human beings, as black bodies in this city are heard. And then he also said, stuff like this, it doesn't happen in our communities Nobody's investing in our communities. Nobody's protecting our communities. If so, we wouldn't have been here today. Um, because one of the slogans for the conference was invest and protect. Huh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and you have Rahm Emanuel and Stephanie Rawlings-Blake there. And 
for the past couple months, for Rawlings Blake, the past year, almost now, that has been a major criticism of their administrations is that they're not investing in um, these black poor communities in their cities. So Emmanuel did, I mean, he spoke on he a panel. He did speak. He did speak was, on a panel. He spoke on a panel, but the panel did not address the things that everyone's talking about. Right. He didn't so mention that was Laquan McDonald. Just won't, it just won't talk about it. He talked about graduation rates, kids in summer mm-hmm. jobs, and overall crime. That's right. I, being I, down. I, I, the sound, the soundbite that, that was extracted from uh, Rom's uh, keynote that I heard on NPR anyway was that he, he said the best uh, anti-gang interdiction was uh, kids walking across the stage with diplomas, and it, to me, it, I was, you know, the, you know, there's several steps in the chain, right? And then also, some kids who are in gangs do get diplomas. It's true. So it's just strange. We're we're not. <laughs> it's, it's strange. The session was about public safety, but that's not what and the community news is about trusting right cops. Right. We're we're he he did not talk about the thing that people are talking about. Karen Weaver, the mayor of Flint, Michigan, she was there as well. Uh, yes. What uh, what did she what did she have to say at this meeting? Well, she tried to talk, <laughs> and she tried to answer questions, but um, the protesters they they got her too. Um, I would actually say that they interrupted her a little bit more harshly, for lack of a better word, than they did Rawlings Blake, because um, they were saying things like, you know, this is a predominantly black community and they don't have water and the water that they've been using is poisonous. Um, Washington Post wrote a piece about it being considered hazardous material. Yeah. Oh, you um, can't drink it. Yeah. yeah. It's unsafe for consumption <laughs> right? by yes. humans. The local GM plant won't use the water because it was corroding their auto parts. That's that's uh, tricky for Karen Weaver because, I mean, she was just elected mayor. Right. And she ran on a campaign of the water being bad. And the incumbent right. mayoral administration not and, having done a good job, and she was she was frustrated by the protesters, um, and because of you know what she is trying to do for the city, and because she wasn't mayor when this all started happening, I think that played into that frustration. You could see that she was upset with. Oh, she's happening. you could tell just like from her the way she sounded, the, how she was answering things. The way it's was, looked to me is that the entire Flint situation became the national story it is now because of what she did right. when she declared an emergency in December. And at first, everyone's like, what are you talking about? We already, Yeah, your water's bad. There's she a just, county emergency. But then the national media, that the, the declaration she made allowed people to pay attention. It doesn't really seem apt for her to be protested, uh, considering I, I don't think she's done anything particularly to harm or harm people or exacerbate this crisis. Yeah, I don't think she was the target. Um, the targets were Rom and Rawlings Blake. One of the more interesting things that I've read recently was a, a story by Terrence McCoy in the Washington Post. Kudos to Terrence McCoy uh, for for doing the legwork on this because he found the connection between Flint and Baltimore. Uh, he un- unearthed evidence that Freddie Gray's life. Uh, this is the guy who uh, was 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 killed while in police custody. Uh, was inalterably affected by the fact that he was lead poisoned. Right. Uh, for people who don't know, lead poisoning uh, lead is lead is a is a powerful powerful, uh, just depressing uh, in its effects is a neurotoxin. Uh, the extent to which it can damage a person, especially a young person, is. It's it's really profound. Uh, we're talking about we're talking about a poison that inhibits physical and mental development. Uh, there have been recent studies linking uh, lead abatement to a decrease in crime across the board. There's right. this idea that the toxicity of lead and what it does to uh, your brain and your mental capacity is so severe that it literally can turn someone from a, a rational human being capable of handling situations into someone more apt to respond with negative emotions to the situation, more apt to lapse into criminality. Right. In a way, it binds some of these mayors together in ways maybe they didn't ever plan to. 
Well, yeah, lead, lead is in the cities. The big cities. Yeah. Where everyone lived. When they were putting well, the pipes in underground, they were made out of lead. It's crazy to think that they're all just still down there, and it became a crisis in Flint because they didn't make sure the water wouldn't leach the lead out of the pipes. And yeah, then in Baltimore is lead paint. Yeah, yeah. And the there's no effort to get rid of them, and people pay the price. We just, we just keep our eye on the water levels and do right. something after it's too late. Yeah, it's it it, it inhibits it inhibits the city's ability to rise up beyond their circumstances when people are literally poisoned out of the ability of doing so. So this was it sounds to me like this 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 time around the US conference on mayors was something of a raucous caucus. Was there anything in any quiet moment that stuck out anybody with uh some I don't know ray of sunshine? I would say that the protesters were a ray of sunshine. Mainly because, one, I think this is the um, closest Black Lives Matter protesters have ever gotten to elected officials. That's true. Because it's like usually, you know, they're in the crowd, but they actually like they got close and they were able to just kind of impose themselves more upon this um, this conference that's talking about all of these glamorous things that are going to be done and every year they talk about these great things that are going to be done. But if it does happen, it doesn't end up being that great. The U.S. Conference of Mayors is really, in essence, an ideas festival. Right. And uh, one thing that more ideas festivals need, we're talking about places like Aspen. We're talking about <laughs> places like Davos, which is ongoing right now, is a hard dose of blunt reality. I don't know if Black Lives right. Matter protesters can... Wind their way to Davos. I understand you need several limousines and some private helicopters to get there. <laughs> but if y'all can get there, get there. I really, really recommend it. All right, Julia, thank you for getting out there for us. Arthur, thank you for being here as well. Thank you. I contributed Thanks. something maybe. We'll never know. Uh, <laughs> we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We're always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Bolguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by former Flint City Councilman Josh Freeman, along with Huffington Post reporters Ashley Allman, Zach Carter, Julia Craven, and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. 